Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Code Guild. Today you're going to hear a recording of an AMA hosted on July 12, 2023 with Dr. Liz Haynes, a cell biologist at UW-Madison. She's a postdoc with a laser focus on neurodegenerative disease and explores that through zebrafish and imaging. This episode is sponsored by SciFind.io, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Be mindful that it is a live conversation and has a format that can involve the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. Hey, everyone. So welcome. Today, we're diving headfirst into the waters of cell biology, cognitive aging, neurodegenerative disease, and zebrafish. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our AMA speaker, Dr. Liz Haynes. She's got a PhD, a microscope, and a keen interest in our brain's tiniest defenders, the microglia. I hope I said that right. Microglia. (laughs) Microglia, yeah. The rumors are true. Uh, You know, she loves zebrafish. She's not afraid to show it. They might not be the Einsteins of the aquatic world, but they actually have a thing or two to teach us about our own brains. Uh, Before she became a zebrafish whisperer, she was at UNC Chapel Hill studying actin dynamics and later dived into the world of Kinesin 1's cargo binding subunits, a cell biologist, a postdoctoral fellow, and also a fierce advocate of open source. Dr. Haynes is all these things and more. But the microscope lens doesn't stop there. She develops all sorts of new strategies to better understand the microglia's role in neurodegenerative disease progression. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Liz Haynes to the stage and get ready for some brain picking and fish discussion. Uh, well, thank you for the introduction. I'm really happy to be here, and I, I'm really excited about the sci-fi community. I think it's a really uh, cool endeavor, and I hope to see uh, more participation from the imaging community there as well. Cool. Yeah, I know there's a lot of folks who go on image.sc, like really good troubleshooting, and you can see all the different software things. So um, uh, I definitely know there's lots of great resources out there, too, and hopefully we can be a part of that as well. Yeah, it seems to me that it's like another side of the coin because image.sc is a lot about image analysis and image analysis tools. And then there's things like the Confocal Listserv for more straightforward imaging questions, but the actual like sample prep, protocol, troubleshooting, that kind of thing, I feel like has a real place on SciFind. So I would personally like to see that. I see. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't just end with like the analysis. There's the entire wet lab component of how we, you know, how we prepare our samples, how we even get to the point where we're even looking at the image. <laughs> exactly. And there's the uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you oh, yeah. prep, a, prep a bad sample, it's not going to help to do the best image analysis you can possibly do on it. Yeah, I feel like it's the same with um, sequencing. Back when I uh, uh, worked at a core facility, people would complain like, oh, why is this bad? I'm like, I prepared everything fine. I think it's your sample, <laughs> you know? Um, so. Kind of to get started, I always love to ask this question because um, I just like to know about someone's history and whatnot. So what, you know, you're a scientist now, you've been, you know, you've been in the biz for a minute. Uh, what made you become it? What were you like as a kid or what was your inspiration to kind of jumping into this universe? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really important to me is that I grew up in a rural background. And so I didn't really have anybody who did anything close to this in my life. Um, My parents also, they never went to college or anything. So um, I kind of came out of the blue in terms of my my interest in biology. But I think a big part of that was that 
we lived on the border of a um, state forest and we lived on a lake. And so we also lived in Florida. So there's just a lot of critters around. Um, so I grew up with like gators and bears and snakes just being a part of the everyday territory. And I think that really led me to be interested in biology. And of course, this was the time when like Bill Nye, the science guy and Beekman's world were really big. So I definitely remember watching those shows and being really interested in science and trying to do those little experiments on my own. Um, but there was a large period of time where I thought I was going to go into computer science. Um, sort of as, as a teenager, I tinkered around with computers a lot. And um, I was very isolated being in a rural community and I was also homeschooled. Um, and so I I didn't, you know, I, I, I was a nerdy kid. I spent a lot of time on the computer. I spent a lot of time tinkering and, and building up things and um, doing a little bit of coding. And I thought this was my future, but I actually dual enrolled in um, a community college course when I was an early teenager around 14, 15. And it was a microbiology course. And I realized that I had all of this affinity for the biological world. It kind of reignited my passion for biology. Um, and the thing that really clinched it was I learned about cloning techniques. And I didn't know they were called cloning techniques at the time there, but like basic molecular biology of like, we can build things with DNA. So you can program a cell to do what you want it to do much in the same way that you might program a computer. And that really excited me at the time. Uh, and so that is what kind of turned me around from uh, wanting to do computer science to wanting to do biology. And now I feel like I'm in an area where I do so much with image analysis, so much with microscopy, that it's really at the interface of getting to tinker with cool technology and programming, but also that it's everything's driven by the biological questions that you want to ask. Ooh, that's super cool. I like that. That's like, I mean, I think that's a very different type of upbringing and like approach to how maybe some people get into science, like really kind of autodidactic in a lot of ways, um, your exploration into that. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it to some degree because I think I really would have loved to be involved in more uh, science programs and more formal education. Um, but at the same time, I got left by myself for hours at a time to just take apart computers and mess around with things. And I think you learn a lot doing that. So I have this funny thesis that I want to see if, if it makes sense. When you were really small, like let's say you were like six years old or something like that. What was the what was the profession that you aspired to be? Um, I think just to kind of preface it, a lot of folks they started off with like like the pathway is like archaeologist or forensic <laughs> crime stuff. That's kind of what I always hear. Uh, yeah, paleontologist for sure. Um, I was young <laughs> in the era of Jurassic Park, so I watched a lot of documentaries on sort of like the science behind Jurassic Park. And I remember one of the very first um, Bill Nye the Science Guy experiments that I tried to do in the backyard was uh, fossilize a sponge that had been um, cut out of a, it cut out to be a dinosaur bone shaped. So uh, definitely a lot of interest in that. But yeah, your, your thesis seems to be working out pretty well. Yeah, like it's the same for me. I'm just, I think when you're that young, you just start off, oh, archaeology, dinosaurs. And exactly, we probably grew up in this time where that was all the hype. If you, I don't know if you have, if you ever went to those like scholastic book fair things. Where they oh, have, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, the encyclopedias. <laughs> um, 
And so it's so a bit of a tangent, but I like to kind of go in on that. Um, so I would say we can kind of fast forward a bit. What Give us a quick introduction on your current work, you know, what brought you to where you are now, your research, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so I, um, I want to say that I have what looks like a bit of a meandering path. I've worked on a lot of different things, uh, but I think in the end that the key that unites all of the topics I've worked on is being interested in how cells navigate and perform functions in complex physiological environments. So they're interpreting cues from their environment and changing themselves, whether that's through uh, regulation of genetic elements or regulation of proteins um, to suit that environment. And so the very first thing I worked on as an undergrad, and this was something that I was very lucky to kind of stumble into, I was trying to get a, a job at the time and I managed to get a job in a lab and that lab studied toxin trafficking. So the very first thing that I worked on um, was basically how toxins that are ribosomal inhibiting toxins uh, get into the cell and actually get access to the ribosome, even though they're going through endocytic pathways. Uh, so that was sort of the very basic level of like, how does this toxin get to where it needs to go? And then from grad school, I started asking questions that were more, how does the cell get to where it needs to go? And I got interested in that because a very big part of um, bacterial toxins and how they're mediated um, is sort of this control of the actin cytoskeleton. Sometimes bacteria will hijack the actin cytoskeleton to do their bidding. And it's also a very important part of like this endocytosis pathway. So, uh, you know, fast forward to grad school, the question that I was trying to ask was about directed cell migration. So um, that is largely driven by cytoskeletal processes like uh, actin dynamics. And I specifically looked at how actin was assembled and disassembled in order to uh, drive cells towards a gradient. So if there's a cue that they want to move towards, um, how do they detect that cue and how do they drive themselves towards that cue? And that's really important for so many things. That's important for um, development, for cancer. Uh, basically, every single day, cells in your body are rearranging their actin in order to accomplish biological tasks. So I really enjoyed that. It made me fall in love with the cytoskeleton, but more importantly, it made me fall in love with my crop because a lot of how you observe these cytoskeletal events is through microscopes. And so um, I wanted to have more context with what I was doing in terms of a 3D physiological environment, because uh, during grad school, I was working largely with cells in a dish. And you can do a lot with cells in a dish, but the environment is limited. You control what they're exposed to. Uh, and I, I wanted to see how cells were really making decisions in a organism. So in a more naturalistic environment. And so that's why I moved to zebrafish, because that really unites what microscopy you can do, because they're transparent and they're wonderful organisms for looking at under a microscope. Uh, and you can also ask a lot of cell biology questions with them because they are so accessible. They have a lot of genetic tools. Uh, so then I looked at axon outgrowth in neurons and how those axons were essentially trafficking things and proteins within them to drive uh, axon targeting and axon development and uh, sort of functional nervous system uh, development. And so now um, 
So now in my postdoc, <laughs> well, I was in a postdoc before, so that was my first postdoc. Now I'm in a second postdoc where I'm doing largely independent work. So this is all stuff that uh, came out of the work that I did previously. Uh, and now sort of once we've gotten to the level of the nervous system, I'm now asking questions about how that nervous system is maintained. And a, a big part of how the nervous system is maintained are these uh, cells, these uh, cells that are innate immune cells of your brain called microglia. And they uh, do so many different tasks. They're amazing, right? They function in development where they can uh, prune synapses. They can help uh, circuits sort of uh, reinforce themselves and develop better. Um, and they protect your brain from insults. So they survey for invading pathogens. They survey for problems. They clean up debris. They clean up dead cells. Uh, and so they keep our brains healthy, but they have this double-edged sword function in um, aging and disease where they can both protect us, but they can also drive neuroinflammation and drive disease processes. So I'm sort of asking questions about how their function changes during aging and how the environment that is aging around them influences their own aging and their own function. Really comprehensive. I, <laughs> I I hope everyone has a good overview now of it. And to kind of accentuate on a point earlier, you had started with Acton. And um, if for those of you who don't know, her Twitter handle is Acton Crazy. And I'm like, that I I go berserk over a science pun. Like and so <laughs> that the fact that you snagged that one is uh is witty. Um I actually have, I have so many different questions, but I think the first one I want to start with is what sort of different tools, molecular or otherwise, do you use on the daily? What are your favorites? Why? Like lifesavers, hack? Let's start with the tooling and then we can kind of go into the, um, some of the subject matter. So, I mean, that's a, I guess that's a really big question for me because I do so many different things, right? So I, I do have to do molecular biology and cloning to make um, constructs to use in the zebrafish. And I, so for that, I would really shout out the um, Toll 2 kit. Uh, and that is a wonderful resource that's available to the zebrafish community specifically for making transgenic zebrafish. Uh, uses Toll 2 transgenesis. And it's basically this kit of uh, plasmids that are all in the gateway cloning system. Uh, so you can and have like different promoters, different um, middle entry clones, things like that. Mix and match them. You can develop your own. Uh, so that's sort of your starting point in zebrafish for developing um, at your own transgenic or your own constructs that you want to use in the zebrafish. Um, a second point, I suppose. So I use a lot of light sheet microscopes, and there is so there's so many different configurations. There's so many different things that you can do with them. But really, one of the things that unites them is most of them are a little DIY, right? There's always a little DIY aspect. And so it's really useful to have a bunch of different tools to use for sample mounting of different types of samples um, and also for like sanity checks. So, right, like uh, fluorescent beads, tetraspect beads, having those around to just check your light path really important, um, really useful. Uh, but also you would be surprised at some of the different tools that I use during mounting. Like one of my favorite things is actually, um, I collect my cat's discarded whiskers, like when he sheds a whisker, and that is my favorite embryo manipulation tool. So I just take a whisker and tape it to a little wooden stick and use that to poke embryos around. 
So you kind of get used to um, being a little bit scrappy and uh, using unusual things for your sample mounting and sample preparation. And that was actually one of the things that I posted um, on the forum was talking about uh, sample mounting for specifically for tissue clearing uh, and sort of all of the weird different presentations you can use to um, mount a cleared tissue sample. Oh my God, wait, was the cat thing in there? The cat thing was not in there, but I could add it in there. It's literally please, my favorite tool. Please write an please write a post about the cat whisker because that's that's some that's some next level DIY. Like um Yeah, I um, wonder if I should credit my cat on some of my publications because honestly I have so many of his little whiskers. I keep them like all, all on a piece of tape in my desk. So when I need a new tool, I just grab another one. And I don't know, there's a fine line between um, really a suspect behavior and normal behavior in biologists. And I don't know where that falls on that line. This is that that is an incredible hack. I don't think anyone's come up with that one. So, I mean, not that I know of, or at least that it's been shared publicly. Um, that's a as a cat person, I'm proud of uh, the utilization of our feline friends. Um, <laughs> On top of that, just to kind of extend on the microscopy, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of work with two photon and light sheet microscopy. How is how does um, specifically like multi scale micro microscopy and and these specific tools uh, in layman's terms? Why are these methods so well suited for research with microglia with our brains? Um, what about it is you know advantageous and why? Yeah, so uh, the DIY aspect for light sheet is really one of the big ones, right? So most other types of microscopy, you are trying to get your sample to fit on the microscope. You aren't trying to get your microscope to fit around your sample. And light sheet tends to take the other approach where you have your sample in mind and then you try to build a light sheet microscope that is as gentle as possible or as well suited to your sample. Um, so then, you have all these examples of these wonderful microscopes like um, Adam Glaser's open top spim system or mesospim system um, where you can put a huge sample on it. Like they've done, you know, entire brains. There are people who are doing entire cleared mice, like the whole mouse. Um, and you can you can go as small as looking at individual neurons in a whole brain sample or as large as looking at the lymphatic system in an entire mouse. Those are things that have been done. And really part of the drive to do that is the fact that you can build these microscopes around your sample. Um, for two photon, uh, I would say that one is really suited for multi-scale because you're able to go deep. So light sheet, you need relatively clear samples. Um, it's it really needs to be something that your light can move through unimpeded. So if you have differences in refractive index um, or any aberrations in the light path, your light sheet itself will get degraded and so your imaging quality will go down. And that makes it incompatible for really doing live imaging with adult zebrafish. You can do live imaging with um, embryonic and larval zebrafish with light sheet, but once you get to adults, there's no way your light sheet would survive meeting the sample. And so that's where two photon comes in. And with two photon, um, not only can we use different objectives to look at either large scale things or small scale things, 
Uh, but because of the sort of physics of how two photon works, you're using a longer wavelength of light, um, you're using two photon excitation, so you can um, go very deep in the tissue and avoid any kind of scattering um, or you know, sort of aberrations from that. Uh, and so we're able to image, for example, the microglia imaging that I'm doing, um, you know, I can go up to 400 microns deep into the brain of a living zebrafish using two-photon microscopy to look at what microglia are doing. And so having these different techniques and being able to pair uh, different techniques with what I actually need to see is really useful. And so I'm a big proponent of um, there are many different microscopes that can usually get the job done and having access to as many microscopes as possible is great because you get to um, really pick and choose what is going to work best for your question instead of trying to like pigeonhole your question to what microscope you have access to. Cool. Yeah, I think the other the other thing that um, we had spoken about this before, for those of you who don't know anything about zebrafish, and I don't know, I had no clue until I asked this question. How do you mount the zebrafish onto the microscope? Like literally, this 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 blew me away. <laughs> Could you explain that? How do you prepare them? How you prepare them? Yeah, so you're talking about the adult zebrafish mounting for two photon? Um, yeah, the, um, you know, where you drug them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I image adult zebrafish, which there's, you know, there's only a, a small number of people right now that are working with adult zebrafish. And of course, one of the reasons why it's difficult to work with adult zebrafish is they need to be underwater, right? They need to be breathing with their gills. And unfortunately, if you anesthetize a zebrafish enough to image it, oftentimes you're also anesthetizing it enough that it's not moving its gills and getting enough water flow to oxygenate itself, which is bad, right? You want, you want your zebrafish to survive the imaging process. Um, and so we actually intubate the zebrafish. So we take a, a little tiny tube that has water with anesthetic and, um, you know, it's oxygenated water. And we put it in the fish's mouth so that water is actually continuously flowing past the fish's gills. And we use a water dipping objective. So the fish is in water the entire time. It's intubated, so it's getting enough oxygen and it's completely anesthetized. And then we um, use the water dipping objective, uh, dip it into the water, and then we can image the brain uh, basically while the zebrafish is comfortably asleep. And so this isn't necessarily suited to every question in the world, right? Because sometimes you want to do uh, things that the zebrafish needs to be awake for, such as behavioral stimulus or like 3D environments and reaction to that. Um, but for what I look at, which is a sort of microglia, they don't really care whether the fish, as far as we know, they don't care whether the fish is awake or sleeping. So that's the sort of the process of how we image these adult zebrafish. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. I had no concept in my mind. I thought you just like put them on a slab, but it was it's very fun to imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, what... this is part of the whole philosophy of like, you gotta be able to um, build your imaging system around your sample to some degree so that you can ask the best questions that you can without like, for example, having to dissect the brain out and slice it up and then not having that whole context of like a live animal anymore. So what sparked your interest um, in using zebrafish as a model for these for neurodegenerative diseases? What are some surprising things you learned? And I guess what is your disease focus even with them? Yeah, so uh, I would say one of the really interesting things about zebrafish is that they are highly neuroproliferative as adults. 
And so one of the really interesting things or the benefits of asking questions about neurodegenerative disease in zebrafish is that they are likely to be much more resilient to a lot of forms of neurodegeneration because they are able to make new neurons. And that is very hard for most mammals to do. Uh, so zebrafish, uh, they can recover from spinal injuries. They can recover from traumatic brain injuries. Uh, they're really sort of amazing in their regenerative capacity. And so I not only want to ask questions about sort of natural aging and the natural biology of, of why aging makes you more susceptible to neurodegeneration, uh, but I also want to ask questions of pathways that may promote resilience. And zebrafish may be a key to learning how humans can be more resilient to neurodegenerative diseases. And one of the diseases I'm really interested in is Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, this is a big problem in the United States. Uh, as we have an increasingly aging population, more and more people are going to be um, experiencing Alzheimer's disease. More and more people are going to have to be caretakers for people with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And it's something that's been intensively studied for a super long time. But unfortunately, we're still um, not very advanced in understanding how to prevent cognitive decline that is associated with Alzheimer's disease. And your listeners may know that, you know, a drug was recently approved by the FDA to um, uh, help treat Alzheimer's disease, but there's still a lot of questions around whether that's actually going to be effective or not. So it's really still a wide open field in terms of therapies that could be developed for this. And I'm hoping that using zebrafish will be able to understand not only how microglia contribute to aging and neurodegeneration, but also pathways that may um, help zebrafish uh, and eventually humans maintain um, their cognition during aging and neurodegenerative disease. Thank you for the overview. Um, I think, uh, and we, we had touched on this before, but a bit of a spicier take. Uh, obviously, I think a lot of us are familiar with Alzheimer's kind of in the media with some of uh, the features of it being uh, like the research was falsified before. What are some misconceptions that you kind of want to uh, dispel about uh, some of that news and the field itself now and what are and kind of the findings that may have come out of it uh, yeah so i think you're talking about this one specific paper that looked at um, one specific species of amyloid so i guess to to way back um one of the main pathologies involved in alzheimer's disease is the development of these amyloid plaques and there's a protein called amyloid precursor protein APP that is um, one of the genes that is involved in familial Alzheimer's disease. It's known that if you have uh, multiple copies of APP, such as in Down syndrome, uh, you are more likely to get amyloid buildup, amyloid plaque buildup, and get uh, Alzheimer's disease pathology. But we really don't necessarily understand the role of amyloid plaques and uh, amyloid beta in Alzheimer's disease, you know, are these plaques something that occurs because of other pathways that have been damaged? Um, is there a loss of function that occurs? So you're like, when these plaques happen, you're getting the loss of the natural role of APP in the brain. There's a lot of questions involving this. So the, the field uh, has been, somewhat focused on the amyloid hypothesis for a very long time, that getting rid of these amyloid plaques is going to be what um, fixes Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so the paper in question that you're talking about where the data was falsified, 
Um, they identified one subspecies of amyloid that they that they claimed was associated with memory loss. So then that was a a major finding, right? Because it's it was thought that amyloid plaques are what is causing Alzheimer's disease and what is causing um, the memory loss associated with Alzheimer's disease. But there was no hard and fast connection of like, yes, this species of amyloid is responsible for memory. And that was what that paper that had falsified data in it claimed was that they had found a species of amyloid that was responsible for that. And so while that paper may have been discredited, uh, there's still so much evidence that amyloid itself is a major driver, um, or at least a, a major part of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and a lot of that comes from just GWAS studies, uh, familial Alzheimer's disease, the fact that APP comes up as being involved um, again and again in um, genetically in Alzheimer's disease. So the question isn't necessarily, you know, is this gene involved? Is amyloid involved? That's a pretty open and shut. Yes, amyloid is doing something in Alzheimer's disease. Um, but there is a lot of questions of, is it the only important thing? And is getting rid of amyloid plaques actually going to fix the memory loss associated, the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease? And so that was what um, this drug that uh, was recently approved, they did see that there was a small improvement in cognitive decline. So there's less cognitive decline uh, after they treated with this drug that targets amyloid plaques. Um, but really, it's still kind of up in the air. Is that going to be meaningful to the patients uh, considering there's some big drawbacks with um, potential risk uh, with this drug? Yeah, thanks for that clarification. I think a lot of people might only touch that like really superficially, and it can be quite sensational um, from a media perspective. So it's nice to have it uh, clarified a bit. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it is really scary to be a lay person and just see like these big articles that, you know, basically say like, is everything a lie? Is this entire field a lie? But really, there's there's a lot of good research that's been done, a lot of very solid research that's been done. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, there's still so many open questions with Alzheimer's disease. It's really a perplexing disease, and it's kind of a, a constellation of different systems involved. And that's just one of the things that I'm looking at is how neuroinflammation is involved in Alzheimer's disease and how microglia mediate that. Great. Um, to kind of go on another note, uh, you're obviously a big advocate for open source uh, kind of publishing and image analysis tools. What do you think are some key advantages to open source or challenges in the field? And how have those open source tools made a difference in your research as a whole? Yeah, I think the biggest one is just accessibility, right? Like uh, coming from a background where um, I sort of, you know, autodidactic, like you said, you know, I sort of relied on information gathering to learn a lot when I was young. And I continued to do that all throughout my career in science. And so having access to information as quickly as possible, I think benefits everybody. Um, the fact that you can preprint something and immediately have the community's feedback is so, so important. Uh, and as for image analysis tools, there are huge barriers to getting involved with imaging already. Like there are um, such expensive equipment that you have to buy just to get started with certain types of imaging. But there are also these wonderful, wonderful DIY communities where people are publishing 
how to build a light sheet microscope using Lego bricks, how to build a light sheet microscope for under $500 using kitchen equipment. Um, there was actually one that was uh, published called the Cheezoscope. That was somebody's uh, experiment during COVID was like, can I build a, a cheap light sheet microscope from my kitchen? Uh, and so, yeah, just being able to put this information out there and make it really accessible for people allows more people to do science. And I think that's always worthwhile. And especially with image analysis, having those open source tools, so we've already talked about there are open source plans for building a microscope. And now we also have uh, all of these wonderful open source tools with ImageJ, with Napari, with um, you know, all the IC, all of this wonderful community of, of bioimaging people and, and image analysis people. Um, those tools are community built, they're community supported, uh, and people are really passionate about it. And not having to pay $20,000 for a license for proprietary software where you don't necessarily even know the transformations it's doing to your data necessarily, I think it's so important to give people those powerful tools to do analysis on their data, and then they can spread that data uh, quickly through preprints, and it's just a better ecosystem and environment for everyone. Now, how do you see the future of uh, like scientific publishing? If you could see a utopian view of it, what's um, what would you like it to look like? How the eLife experiment turns out. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar, eLife now has a system where essentially the barrier to entry is whether your paper is um, accepted to be reviewed or not. And then they'll send it out for a review and those reviews will be publicly available so anyone can read them. Uh, and then it's up to you to decide how you respond to those reviews and when you make your publication the version of record. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I think with preprints, that's always my first preference to be able to put your data out there. But I do think that peer review makes our work so much better. Being able to see our work through another set of eyes or multiple other sets of eyes is really valuable. Um, but, you know, this formalized process like ELIF is doing is maybe not the only way to get peer reviewed science. We as a community, we're already for free doing reviews for journals. If we decided to do reviews for each other, I think we could have just as productive a community and just as productive a peer review system without having sort of the middleman of journals uh, serving as a gatekeeper for whose science gets out and how fast that science gets disseminated. So I guess, yeah, to summarize, I think if we could have a preprint system and some kind of a formalized peer review system for preprints, that would be absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure there's people who have bigger visions than that, but I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, I think even within that, like, right, when people have this, um, to piggyback off it, like this really individualistic lone wolf perspective of science, and yet science has become so like complex in a multifaceted way, that even if you do have these kind of formal peer review processes with a paper, like, is it really possible that, you know, maybe you have one reviewer or two reviewers that are actually able to touch into all the features of the paper? Like a method section itself might have, you know, five different specialists touching different things. Can they ascertain whether the method, you know, the methodology is good? So without exposing it to some kind of larger digital framework, when you're just constraining it like that, I also don't 
Do you know what I'm trying to say in that way? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, having a more open peer review system, you can have people who are truly experts in individual areas of the paper comment on it instead of just hoping you get people who are able to ex- uh, understand the paper in its entirety. Is that sort of what you were saying? Yeah, yeah. It's like, right, because they pick maybe a few a few people to review the paper. They're not like, it's not an army of folks um, in the way that, you know, at least with preprints, the interesting thing, I think, in a lot of computer sciences, they, with archive, right, they use archive very frequently because it just lets people rip into it. And the proof of the pudding is kind of, um, in the almost, how can I put it? Like you can run those things and play with it almost instantaneously, like these types of algorithms. So I think in a wet lab scenario or with science, like you, there's just so much complexity, even as we know the expertise required to just run a protocol is it's like cooking, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's that's the nice part about having a more DIY-minded community and a really supportive community is that you're going to want to change the recipe for what suits you. And so the faster that information is out there, the faster you can tweak it to sort of fit what you're doing, what your questions are. And so this was a kind of interesting one. In terms of microscopy imaging, you obviously have a lot of experience. Um, you you've worked with other organisms i remember you mentioned like you are thinking of how to explore all sorts of different critters and tricks when working with like new types of samples um how do you get started in a space you don't know or what are um i'm trying to remember like what exactly the question was uh but we had discussed something about this briefly yeah um i well i think that light sheet has made space for a lot of animals that are not necessarily suitable for other types of microscopy that you couldn't necessarily mount on a slide. And so people who are very um, proficient at light sheet have often encountered multiple different types of strange samples. Uh, And so I think that part of what I find exciting about working with microscopy and um, also about neurobiology, uh, it kind of plays into this too, is that there are samples, there are animals that are really good at certain things. And we can now pick, there's so many different tools. There's like CRISPR, there's different microscopy tools, there's different tools for labeling tissues. We can now pick uh, organisms that work really well for our research questions instead of, again, just trying to like figure out, how can I ask this question in mouse? How can I ask this question in a human cell line? Um, you know, it, when you didn't have as many tools available, when CRISPR wasn't a thing, you had to go with systems that already had tools built for them. And now it, you're just so much more able to actually ask interesting questions um, with different animals. And so uh, I think considerations, you know, first of all, if you're embarking on this, make sure that you are really picking the best choice organism for the question you want to ask, right? You have the power to do that. Um, How hard is this animal going to be to work with? Uh, Am I going to be able to handle this animal in the lab? Um, Am I going to be able to get enough samples with it? Things like that. Um, Once those questions are answered, then you can look to things that are in a similar family to it. So for example, a new model organism in the fish world is Danionella. 
uh, Daniel Nelsarebrum in particular is being used for um, neurobiology work. And it's because it is, I believe, one of the smallest, if not the smallest, uh, vertebrate. Um, so it's very, very tiny. And uh, it's very easy to access its brain because it retains juvenile characteristics, and, including the fact that its roof plate of its skull never ossifies. So it's very easy to access and image the brain. Um, but the best part is because it is in the same family as other fish models like Madaka and zebrafish, uh, the tools for those animals are, are applicable to Danionella. So you can use the same kind of transgenic tools. You can use the same sort of CRISPR protocols, uh, things like that. So uh, I know someone else who's working with tree shoes, and I think that a lot of mouse protocols carry over for tree shoe. Um, so there are things like that where if there's an animal that is uh, related enough, you can take those tools as a starting point. Um, when it comes to just imaging itself, I think just really thinking about what your sample needs. Um, like, you know, there are certain samples that are very squishy and very water-filled, and you don't want to dehydrate those samples. They're going to lose their integrity if you do that. So thinking about how to keep them hydrated and how to image them in a hydrated state, for example, um, you might not want to do a clearing method that involves dehydration on those types of so just really being considerate, understanding what your model organism needs and understanding uh, how your model organism will contribute to the question you want to ask, I think is really important for working with non-traditional models. And I did write actually a review article on um, non-mammalian models for neurobiology, where I talk about zebra finch, I talk about Danionella. Um, and so I think that's also a good um, introduction for people who are interested in sort of non-mouse models, non-rodent models for neurobiology. How do you approach um, problem solving or troubleshooting with like all these complex experiments? What does your personal workflow look like? What's your kind of routine? How do you rip things apart yourself if you got any? Special? Oh, it's, it's definitely, um, you got to just dive into the literature first. And this can be really frustrating because, and this is something that I think sci-fi is trying to address, There, you read a method section and there is so much unsaid in every method section. Um, but I think you really got to just dive into the literature and understand, um, understand the characteristics of your model and your sample first. And then once you kind of know some things to try, um, you can you can then sort of just make a bullet point list of here are the possible pitfalls. Here are the things I expect I'm going to have trouble with in working with this sample. Um, one of the big things that I think I mentioned in one of my sci-fi posts was um, with zebrafish, you can't perfuse them. So with mice, when you're preparing a fixed mouse brain, you're going to perfuse it. You're going to get the blood out of the sample, basically. Um, you can't do that with zebrafish, at least. I have not known anyone to successfully do that. If you can successfully do that, please contact me because I will send you cookies. Um, but yeah, it, it, so you have blood left over and heme is extremely autofluorescent, which is really bad if you're trying to not image heme. It's great if you want to image blood vessels, but if you're trying to image anything else that is going to fluoresce in that same channel, it's kind of a mess. So I really just researched all the different ways that I could possibly get blood out or bleach blood. So um, I kind of created a list of those and I worked through one by one. I tried different combinations of things. I tried different timings of things. And it really just became sort of a list 
that I worked through with different combinatorial um, options on it. And uh, unfortunately, that's sort of what you have to do for imaging because you, know, you can't necessarily predict how your sample is going to react in different circumstances um, or how your antibody is going to react to manipulations you've made to your tissue. So I wish I could say that there was a really a smarter way to go about it, but with imaging, a lot of times it's very um, hands-on, very experimental, seeing what works, but also like, don't just go in blind, go in there informed to what the problems might be. Um, I think, so Doug Richardson uh, put out a great article on using tissue libraries for clearing, which I also linked in my SciFind article. I think that's a great example of how you can systematically work through problems uh, with imaging, with tissue preparation, um, and, and do it in a way that actually gets to your endpoint scientifically instead of just like shot in the dark, trying a million different things and seeing what sticks. Yeah, you're quite systematic with your approach. Some do the brute force, <laughs> brute force, see what works and, you know, what sticks. Um, what, uh, if you do any kind of mentoring with, uh, you know, other graduates or undergrads, even in your lab, um, do you have an approach for that? Maybe how you create a more inclusive environment? How do you make science um, more approachable? Uh, as someone who's, you know, with so much knowledge and expertise. Oh, yeah. I would say for me, um, I felt like I came up in science just sort of learning everything a little bit too late in terms of like rules for doing things or how things are expected to be done. Um, I just felt like it was an environment with a lot of unwritten rules. And so I try to be, first of all, super open with what the culture of science is, like when it comes to writing emails when it comes to, um, you know, sort of uh, approaching the scientific environment. Um, just being super honest about my experiences, being super honest with like, this is how you should approach this situation. Um, and also being really honest about my mistakes, because I want, I want my students to be really comfortable coming to me and being like, oh, hey, I made a mistake. How do we fix this? Because I want to be able to fix it together with them. Uh, so I feel like I really try to make a, a no judgment space and try to be honest with them about times I have made mistakes or things that are difficult for me so they feel like they can approach me if there is a problem. Because I always say, we can fix a problem together, but if you never tell me about the problem, it will never get fixed and it might get worse. So I think that's a big one. It's just like being approachable, being human, and just not expecting them to know certain things coming in, just being really explicit with all of the expectations and requirements. I think that can be really helpful too, is asking, what do you need to learn? What can I do to set you up for success? And, and trying to let them know ways in which you're trying to do that or ways in which you're trying to respect what they need. I think that's a great strategy to take for mentorship. Um, on the mistake, what's like a scary mistake that you've made for like, for me, I once, I, I, th I think I tweeted about this. I like dropped this huge vial of blood on the floor uh -huh. once working late at night. I was extract, I was working with blood samples and it was actually frightening. I, it was, it was just blood everywhere and I had no clue how to clean this. And I just walk into my PI's office like, so <laughs> this thing happened? And they, walk, and they walk into the lab and it's just like everywhere. It's a murder scene. 
<laughs> uh, I did one of the really classic uh, grad student mess ups, which was um, so I did a lot of mini preps and midi preps in grad school. So like basic molecular biology stuff. And um, I the waste flask that I used also had cell culture waste in it. And so I was used to bleaching my cell culture waste. Um, and I knew that you had to bleach bacterial waste. I did not know that the guanidinium salts that are in mini and midi prep kits are incompatible with bleach. And when you add bleach to a flask that has a waste flask that has a bunch of mini or midi prep uh, waste in it, you will create mustard gas. And so luckily no one else was in the lab at the time, but I, I really created a lot of toxic gas. I ended up uh, basically running to the sink while like crying and coughing, trying to uh, dump out uh, and, and put water on this solution that I had made, this bleach and guanidinium salt solution. And uh, I think my PI sort of walked by the lab as I was like crying and spluttering over the sink. <laughs> I was like, what happened? Uh, so that was a lesson I only learned once um, and never had to learn again. But I do repeat that to everyone like on the first day, if they're going to be doing any kind of mini or midi prep work is you cannot uh, mix bleach and guanidinium salts from the mini or midi preps. Um, I would say aside from that, and this will make everybody who works with microscopes like weep inside. Uh, there was one time when um, somebody had done a software update on the software controlling one of our light sheet microscopes, uh, and they had not put certain limits into the system when it rebooted. So the, the stage wants to explore its limits when it first boots up. And unless you tell it, hey, don't do that, here are your limits, it will try and find them itself. And... Um, this resulted uh, during this reboot of the system and the reboot of the scope. Um, I turned on the scope and I quickly saw my, as the stage was moving, my objective was moving very quickly towards a, a metal side of, of the microscope. And I managed to um, stop power to the stage before anything bad happened. But like your heart absolutely drops when you see this extremely expensive piece of glass hurtling towards uh, the metal side of a system. So that would be my other um, big recommendation is always uh, know where your stage limits are, always set your stage limits. Warn everyone about software updates when they happen. Oh, absolutely. When, um, uh, yeah, mistakes are scary, but I mean, you did, I mean, you only violated like UN's like global charter of chemical warfare <laughs> once, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's only something you have to learn once. <laughs> yeah, just, just one time. Slap on the wrist. Um, so what are some like specific challenges that you might, you, that you might have faced like in your career and how did you get over them? Like whether that's cultural or, you know, getting a postdoc, et cetera? Oh, gosh. Um, I feel like I've had a lot of different unique challenges. Um, a big one was being homeschooled. Um, and I didn't have like a guidance counselor or anything to help me apply to colleges. I didn't know what like a college application was supposed to look like. I'm pretty sure I just like put a photo of myself on like one of the personal statements 
um, just because I didn't know. I was like, oh, they want to learn about me. We look at this little photo of myself. Um, I just didn't know how to do anything. And and so now I'm I'm really cognizant of that for students that I'm working with, that everybody shows up with a different background. Everybody shows up with a different level of knowledge of how the system that they're in works and how the environment that they're in works. So I think that's really important to me. Um, the other thing that was big for me was um, I, I'm actually in a second postdoc. So I completed my first postdoc. And basically, I was on an NIH F32. And I uh, got to the end of that. And I still sort of my paper was still in limbo. And I didn't have an independent project that I could apply for faculty positions with. So I was like, oh, I have to do a second postdoc. And luckily, you know, I had interests. Um, that aligned with some other people and I was able to get one and I got a grant to support it. Uh, but, you know, that was a, a turning point for me. I could have chosen to leave science at that point. Um, and I think it's important to, um, it's important to not reject yourself and, uh, you know, let, let other people reject you, right? Let other people um, say like you, you're not cut out for this grant or maybe, you know, we, we chose another person over you. But I think the fact that I didn't just let myself give up when it was time to potentially do a second postdoc, um, I could have just called it quits then. And I've now been able to develop this wonderful project that I'm really happy with. Um, I've got some opportunities for more external funding coming up uh, that I'm really, really excited about. And all of that wouldn't have happened if I had just sort of said like, oh, the timing didn't work out. Things didn't quite work out for me. I'm just going to call it quits. Um, and that's that's been something I've been having to learn continuously because I'm the sort of person who doesn't naturally have a ton of confidence. Uh, so just trying to, to my mantra being like, I don't reject me from opportunities. I let other people reject me from opportunities. Let it be their problem. I'm going to apply anyway. Um, that's an important one. Yeah, in a corny way, it's like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. You know <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but um, I think there's there's a lot of people who suffer from like the imposter syndrome thing, and you know, you're never gonna feel good enough. You're never gonna feel like you totally fit in. You just gotta try anyway. Yeah. What are your um just last two questions? Um, what are your kind of future goals? Like, are you interested maybe in being a PI, like having your own lab or industry? Do you have any specific aspirations or? Yes, I'm really interested in being a PI, being in academia. That's sort of been the track for a very long time. And I got very close to, um, to not doing that, you know, like I talked about, but uh, I have some funding opportunities coming up that are probably going to help me get to that point where I can get a faculty position. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic about that right now. Um, but certainly any capacity that I would have to run a group of scientists, um, whether it be an industry, whether it be in a private research institute, um, I really feel like I love the mentorship process so much. I love asking scientific questions with people. I love brainstorming all these things, and I just want to keep doing that. That's awesome. Um, and the last piece, uh, just kind of a shout out. If you can, if you could collaborate with any scientist right now, like who who are you a big fan of? Who would you want to talk to? Or in fact, who would you even want to have on here that you're like, oh, this person? Or collaborate with even? Yeah, collaborate or talk to. Oh, there's so many people 
uh, in the light sheet world that I'm really excited uh, about. Um, there's, ooh, okay, this is a big question. Um, so certainly uh, everybody who's working with uh, large scale tissue imaging, so like uh, Fabian Voigt or Adam Glaser, um, so the people sort of doing these um, mesoscopic scale uh, clearing, tissue clearing experiments. Um, uh, there are people who are doing label-free imaging. So um, people from Randy Bartle's group, for example, uh, people who are doing FLIM imaging um, from Liz Scala's group, for example. I think label-free imaging really is the future. So that would be really exciting. Um, and then I'm also really interested in um, the sort of new field of psychedelics, right? So um, Cody Wenther's group, um, Alex Sherwood at USONA, like everybody that's doing this work of like, hey, uh, what are these weird molecules that are binding to our serotonin receptors actually doing? How do they modulate uh, pathways? Uh, I think that works super, super cool. So uh, any of those people I would love to work with in the future. Ooh, maybe a little LSD zebrafish collab. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, I, I think that would be super exciting, uh, like psilocybin uh, type stuff or LSD, like actually being able to do live imaging on what's happening when you a dose a fish with a, a psychogenic drug, um, like, because you can do like imaging of neurons firing, right? You look at different areas that are going. I don't know if anybody's actually done that research before. Um, but it would be really neat to be able to kind of image long term what's going on, what uh, neurons are firing. Um, yeah, or even if there are links like from a neurodegenerative perspective, who knows? I don't know. If yeah, I, I do wonder if um, so like these long term effects that happen from um, like, for example, if you uh, give uh, psychedelic drugs for like treatment resistant depression, you'll get like three months of, of improvement in condition. Like are microglia mediating any of that? Um, how, how would this, you know, what's happening to the environment of the brain, not just the neurons? Is it just the neurons that are experiencing a change or is it also the local environment? Yeah, that could be actually really interesting to explore. Maybe I'll bring on one of those folks that you mentioned and, uh, you can, you can pose that question. Hey, <laughs> can we work with zebrafish maybe? <laughs> That's a fun paper. I want to read that. Yeah, I feel like there would be a lot of weird pop sci articles about like dripping fish. On it, I mean, it's great. I feel like any any way to make a good headline like that is always uh, it's always good. Um, good publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, cool. That's that's kind of a wrap for the questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer them. A lot of completely different, interesting topics and tangents that we went on.